Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This morning, the Wall Street Journal reports the Pentagon has an order to move U.S. troops out of Syria as soon as possible. Donald Trump tweeted that we have defeated ISIS in Syria. That's my only reason for being there during the Trump presidency. The U.S.'s 2,000 troops are supporting and training Kurdish YPG forces in northern Syria. They're the troops that took Raqqa and the surrounding area from the Islamic State. President Trump's decision comes after a talk with President Erdogan of Turkey last week. The Turkish president considers the U.S.'s Kurdish allies in Syria a terrorist organization like Turkey's PKK. With me is Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of Muhammad, Prophet um, of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. His website is Informed Comment. Thanks for joining us, Juan Cole. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what do you think is going on here? I know that President Erdogan of Turkey uh, moved troops up to the border last week. He was threatening to go in and um, and and clean out the Kurdish allies of the United States in in northern Syria. Um, did he get his way over? I don't know the Pentagon, the John Bolton, all the people who want the U.S. to stay in Syria are pretty vociferous about this kind of thing in um, the administration. Uh, what do you think is going on here? Yes, there, there's all along been a very deep divide between uh, Trump and his circle and then the foreign policy professionals at state, CIA, state, and, and the Pentagon uh, and uh, Syria is a flashpoint for those internal divisions in the U.S. government. Uh, Trump, uh, uh, to be fair to him, uh, did run on a kind of new isolationism and getting out of Syria. Uh, he said numerous times in the campaign in 2016 that we should just leave Syria to Russia. Uh, and um, so the, the wrinkle now is maybe he's in favor of leaving it to Russia and to uh, and to Turkey. Uh, but this is not a new uh uh, position. He he uh, called for getting out of Syria last summer, and I think uh, Secretary of Defense uh, uh, James Mattis and others went to him and tried to convince him that this was unwise. But the reason that Trump gave at that time was that he wanted Republicans to be able to run on defeating ISIL and then getting out, uh, because those two things appeal to his base. Uh, in, in October. And he may feel that the Republicans did so badly in Congress, partly uh, because people didn't listen to him. The administration, is there any possibility that they're, um, that they could kind of roll this withdrawal back? Uh, you know, it seems like the Defense Department and uh, Sarah Sanders, all the spokespeople want to give this a more nuanced treatment than total pullout. They're going to continue to support their allies in the region. They're going to continue to do things. Is this really a total pullout, or will the machinery of the Pentagon um, and the security services keep some pressure on uh, in that area? Sure. Well, I can only imagine the Pentagon will want to uh, make this go slow, but I mean, all we have right now is a tweet. You know, this is the most extraordinary thing that, you know, our government is being run by a very erratic person who wakes up in the morning and announces policy. Uh, so uh, the language of the tweet is categorical uh, that uh, there would be a full and rapid uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops from uh, Syria. Uh, and um, I suppose the Pentagon is now pinning its hopes on the 
Iraq command that was reconstituted by Barack Obama, which has 5,000 or so troops in northern Iraq, and which has been uh, hitting uh, the, the remnants of ISIL, the, uh, the so-called Islamic State group, uh, in Syria for, over from Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi government itself, was, which is Shiite-ruled, uh, fought a long war against ISIL and took back Mosul in the north near to the Syrian border, and, and Iraq uh, has actually intervened on the Syrian side against ISIL as well. Uh, so I suppose that the, uh, the, if the U.S. troops actually were brought out, and there are probably two or 3,000 uh, uh, contractors as well, uh, that uh, the anti-ISIL actions would then be conducted from Iraq. What did you think about the U.S. strategy of just leaving these 2,000 troops there indefinitely? Because if you were John Bolton, this was going to be your your wedge against Iran, and we're, you were going to stay indefinitely. As long as Iran was there, you were going to be there. What, is it, was that a good strategy? No, I always thought that that particular piece of U.S. strategy is, uh, you know, Obama and Ash Carter made this alliance with the leftist uh, Kurds of northeast Syria because they were the only ones who were sufficiently nearby and threatened by ISIL and willing to uh, fight it uh, uh, on the ground. And so the U.S. gave the the Kurds uh, air support, and they did a magnificent job of fighting ISIL, and they took Raqqa, as you said, but uh, uh, that was the initial reason for the U.S. being uh, in, in Syria, and it had to do with ISIL blowing up Paris in 2015 and, uh, and, and fomenting terrorism in the United States. Uh, and, and Obama would have said it's partly self-defense. Um, but then to have this mission creep that now the real reason the U.S. is in, in Syria is to try to block Iran – uh, was always, uh, uh, you know, a stretch, and a stretch in so many ways because the Syrian border with uh, Iraq is long and porous, and uh, Iran has free reign in Iraq because Iran and Iraq are allies. Uh, the idea that the U.S. could effectively uh, keep Iran from uh, sending materiel to, to Hezbollah through Iraq and Syria by having a few garrisons in the Kurdish areas, is, it was always uh, it struck me as, as uh, frankly, idiotic. And by the way, the, the Kurds are often pro-Iranian as well, so it's not clear we would get buy-in from our own allies. I'm talking with Juan Cole from the University of Michigan about the announcement today that the U.S. would pull its 2,000 troops out of northern Syria as quickly as possible. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about this weekend's elections in Congo. Stay with us. Uh, What happens to the Kurds here, um, the Kurdish YPG forces, the leftist forces that the U.S. fought with? Does Turkey go and roll them up now? Uh, Do they get sold out again? Well, yes. If the U.S. gets out uh, the the, the YPG Kurds, the the leftist uh, uh, party and militia, they are in big trouble. Uh, they have become relatively autonomous from Syria. Uh, they had been part of Syria before the 2011 uh, uh, uprising. But uh, uh, as the Syrian state has, has weakened over the last seven years, uh, they established what was, for all t- intents and purposes, an independent government uh, run according to a kind of post-communist uh, 
principles of cooperatives, and uh, it's it's a kind of leftist experiment. Uh, and uh, so uh, the the Syrian government wants that territory back. They would like to have the Baathist army and police, uh, which is a one-party state, uh, back in control of that area. And then Turkey uh, views the leftist Kurds in uh, Syria as indistinguishable from the PKK terrorist organization, which has roiled uh, eastern uh, Turkey for uh, 40 years with um, a uh, autonomous or, or, or separatist uh, uh, kind of political agenda that turned to a guerrilla dirty war. Uh, so Turkey uh, is very upset about the independence of the Kurds. It could be the Kurds will go back to Damascus and say, look, you know, we'll make a deal with you to come back into Syria more firmly if you'll protect us from Turkey. Uh, it, it's a very fluid situation. Um, do you think that, um, uh, what does President Erdogan want? He seems to have, you know, had this chat with President Trump last week and gotten exactly what he wanted out of it. Yes, and you have to wonder, <laughs> Trump seems to be... Uh, uh, kind of under the thumb of people like Putin and Erdogan, and you wonder what hold he has on them, uh, uh, or what hold they have on him, I mean to say. So um, uh, I don't know if that conversation last week uh, is is what impelled uh, this, uh, this decision on Trump's part, but maybe it's part of it. Uh, certainly, uh, Erdogan has been threatening to go into Munbij, which is... Uh, uh, a town in northern uh, Syria, which the Kurds took from ISIL, uh, but which uh, Turkey objects that they shouldn't have any military garrisons uh, to the west of the Euphrates River. Uh, most of the Kurdish settlements are to the east. Uh, and so he's threatening to invade Munbij. And since there are U.S. special operations forces there embedded with the Kurds, there is a danger of a NATO-on-NATO NATO military encounter, which I think would be completely unprecedented. Uh, and uh, Trump may be trying to, in his own way, uh, tamp down that danger. Do you think that ISIS has been defeated? Is that true? There are some people, I noticed an Illinois congressman, Adam Kinzinger, a former Air Force veteran who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, is mad because he thinks that ISIS is not defeated and that we should stay there. Well, ISIL will never be defeated in, in, in the sense of, of being completely defeated. Uh, it has been demoted from being a state, which it was briefly in 2014 through 2017, uh, back down to being a terrorist organization and a, a insurgent guerrilla force in some areas. But, you know... Uh, I have to say that the same discourse is there about the Taliban in Afghanistan. And during the time that the last 17 years that the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, the Taliban went from being completely defeated in 2001 when the U.S. went in to having 40 to 50 percent of the country now. So when exactly will will these groups be defeated sufficiently for the uh, for the officer corps in the United States to be happy, and the the point the question is: Is the U.S. really going to fight generational wars, the wars that last 50 years, uh, in these places? So I think you're, you're just going to have some extremism in eastern Syria. It's a hard scrabble place. The question is: Would now 
the Syrian government be strong enough and, and, and its Russian and Iranian backers be strong enough uh, to go in themselves uh, to Raqqa and those uh, areas and ensure that the uh, ISIL doesn't get another uh, state-like uh, formation going. I imagine they could take their time if they wanted to and do this over um, a period of time. Uh, the the uh, who would take, take their time? Um, the the from the Syrians and the the Russians and the Turks if they do, if they want to push these Kurds out they could they could do it six months from now they could they could wait a while they could um, do it at the well the, the, the time there are two issues here is yeah there are two issues here one is. Uh, would if the U.S. got out, would there be a resurgence of the uh, of the uh, of ISIL of the Islamic State group in the Arab uh, provinces of Deir Zor and Raqqa in the uh, middle far east of Syria? Uh, and then what will happen to the leftist Kurds in the northeast of Syria, who have been the main fighters against uh, ISIL so far with U.S. support? Uh, the the uh, and, and you know the, the, Syria is is a complex place. I don't mean to confuse people, but what happens to the Kurds is separate from to some extent from what happens to the remnants of ISIL. So what I was suggesting was that the Syrian Baathist government has reconstituted itself to some extent. It was not so interested in taking on ISIL in the past, but it does seem to have. Uh, an ambition to restore control to all of uh, Syria, and so perhaps uh, it and the Iranians and, uh, uh, and and the Russians, having succeeded for the most part in, in, in the rest of the country, may turn their sights on ISIL in the Arab areas of, of the east of, of, of Syria. But that's a, a different issue from what will happen to the Kurds, for whom the Turks are gunning, and no, I think that Erdogan in his recent speeches has been extremely emotional and head up and will want to deal with the Kurdish question sooner rather than later. Juan Cole is professor of history at the University of Michigan. His latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. His website is Informed Comment. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Pentagon's order to move U.S. troops out of Syria as quickly as possible. All the best. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about this weekend's elections in Congo. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Congo has presidential elections on Sunday. The current president, Joseph Kabila, has ruled Congo since 2001. He has been reluctant to step down. This weekend's elections are two years overdue. Only a long campaign of pressure by the opposition made these elections happen. With me is Kambale Musavuli. He is the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. Thanks for joining me again, Kambale. Good to talk with you. Thank you, Jerome. I wonder if you would comment on, on um, Joseph Kabila. He is uh, the outgoing president of Congo, has had kind of a public relations campaign going on. He doesn't usually do a lot of interviews, but he's been giving interviews to National Public Radio and The New York Times and everybody else. 
Um, and he's been saying he wanted these elections perfect. Uh, what, what is going on here? I mean, this is definitely a PR campaign uh, to prepare the international community uh, to women on for this Sunday. Uh, every sense that we see now is that more than likely this Sunday the elections will not take place. Uh, logistically, it's really impossible uh, for that to take place to have a free and fair election. Uh, but what was disturbing about uh, Kabila in the past week uh, giving interviews is that the journalists uh, gave uh, him a pass uh, to his record. And he's been in power for 17 years. Um, the Congo has not improved. It's only deteriorated. Um, you know, we have issues of political prisoners in the DRC. We have had millions of deaths due to the conflict. Peace and stability has not come through. And when you listen to a Western journalist uh, asking Kabila a question uh, regarding uh, his family members, including his children, uh, having mining uh, contracts, and him giving a simple answer such as, well, now, do you know how old my children are to have a permit? Uh, and then the journalist to not rebut his claims shows that they didn't go there prepared. You know, they just received a free ticket and provided a platform uh, for the president of the Congo uh, to give his narrative. And um, that's why I emphasize that you know, this directly came from a lobby firm based in Tel Aviv, Mayor Security, which received $8 million from uh, the Kabila regime uh, to get access to the Trump administration and to Western media. Uh, that's why it's important as we get closer to uh, the elections this Sunday for people to know the struggle of the Congolese people, which has been to have, uh, at least at this moment, uh, have a leadership uh, that represent them, not someone who stayed in power for 17 years and refused to hold elections for over two years now. Now, you mentioned you don't think the elections can happen this Sunday. What do you think is would hold them up exactly? Because it seems like all the candidates are campaigning. There's There's rallies going on. I mean, there is a momentum. The Congolese people do want to see an election happen. They have showed up in masses in campaign rallies, uh, but there are logistical and uh, security uh, challenges happening at the moment. Uh, the first one, actually, I speak about what the state is doing. Uh, they have prevented opposition leaders to campaign. Actually, today, the governor of Kinshasa issued a statement um, pretty much banning any campaign rallies as of today up until Sunday, which is unheard of. Uh, so people who are campaigning right now are stuck wherever they are, and security forces are, are coming there. We have security forces who have shot at civilians with live bullets. According to Human Rights Watch, at least seven people have been killed in the past uh, week during campaign rallies. But now logistically, what, what are we talking about? Congo is the size of Western Europe. As of today, in the 70,000 uh, electoral uh, bureaus, they have yet received uh, equipment, uh, logistical equipment to hold elections. I mean, we have elections this Sunday. An electoral bureau does not have the ballots for the election or any equipment to organize it. In the country the size of Europe, I do not see that happening in the next four days in the Congo. So we, we do know that uh, logistically, they will not be able to get the equipment to the uh, votes, and the deadline for them to actually have it ready was December 5th. So to prevent uh, what is likely to happen, uh, they will delay the elections. 
But what they are not expecting actually to happen is for people to rise up. But every indication that we see on the ground is that if there is no election this Sunday, uh, the Congolese people will rise up. They've said it in, in rallies, in the chants that are saying that they are ready for new leadership. Uh, that is what's worrisome that with the uprising of the Congolese people demanding uh, that they have the leader that they would like to choose, uh, there may be repression, uh, military repression against the civilians. And that's why it's important to shine light on what's happening in the DRC, what the Congolese people are doing uh, to have a representative government and take Congo out of uh, the situation they've been in for over two decades and have a new beginning with new leadership. Well, do you sense that the lack of preparedness on uh, for this election is a deliberate tactic by the current president, Joseph Kabila, to delay elections, to stay in power, to uh, sideline the opposition and just whittle things down to where he wants them? Absolutely. Kabila does not have any interest in organizing elections. I mean, uh, in any democratic country around the world, it's unheard of for elections to be delayed for two years. Uh, every sign shows that he did not even want to uh, not nominate himself to lead the country. The interview that he gave the New York Times and BBC News, uh, he actually stipulated that he would like to run again in 2023. Uh, so we do know that he, he has created a process whereby if elections take place, uh, the results will be a, the candidate that he has chosen, Shadari. I mean, the candidate that he has chosen currently is under sanctions from the European Union for crimes and massacres that has taken place in the Kasai region. I don't. I think we've spoken about that in past interviews. How over a million Congolese have been displaced from Kasai in the past two years, and at least uh, tens of thousands of Congolese have been killed in the Kasai region. He's been implicated into the mass. A massacre, and is the presidential candidate that Kabila has chosen. Uh, so we are faced now in a situation where we know the election will be rigged, no matter what the result is. Uh, is there will be repression on the civilians, but the Congolese people are determined in their presence in the protests, uh, in the campaign rallies, show that they are ready for a change in the country. I'm talking with Kambale Musavuli. He's the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. We're talking about the Congolese elections, which are scheduled for Sunday. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll have global notes, a final global notes with Tony Sarabia, and we'll have some live music in the studio by the Sarabi Ensemble. Uh, join us in a few minutes here for that. Um, I wanted to ask another question about the hand the the person you said was a hand-picked candidate of Joseph Kabila's uh, Emmanuel Shadri who's under indictment uh, in the in Europe um he seems uh some of the material I was reading that has come out in this campaign seems to say that well he was a surprise candidate uh that the that, that Kabila's inner circle didn't really think that he was going to be the guy, but uh, the people, the, the party chose him. Uh, what was that all about? Yeah, indeed, he was a surprise candidate, uh, but I'm looking at it more so as he's a candidate that Kabila can uh, easily uh, control uh, for the next five years. As I hinted, uh, Kabila did state that he would like to run again. Uh, in 2023, even though he's against the Congolese constitution, and even though he's been in power for 17 years. So having Shadari is a convenient leader that he could uh, control. 
but there are even more issues than just Shadari being chosen uh, as a candidate. You know, imagine in a country where uh, there is a majority candidate there, the opposition doesn't even have access to the media. As of today, on national TV in the Congo, not one channel has shown campaign messages from other political leaders uh, who are running for president. So everything has been in place from his campaign rallies, banners for Shadari to be presented as the winner of the election. Uh, but on, luckily, the people are not fooled by it. Uh, so you say media, um, how can I say, media campaign to present an election as free and fair uh, from the Kabila uh, regime without actually having the voice of the Congolese people um, being heard uh, in this process. What's happened with the opposition candidates? I know that the opposition got together, put forward um, a single candidate, and then uh, there was a, um, a political fight, and then, then another candidate announced, and it seems like the opposition has split its vote. Is What happened there? Yes, so we've had uh, opposition leaders coming together a couple of weeks ago um, to choose one candidate that will face uh, the majority, uh, um, the majority of uh, the government. The person who was chosen was Martin Fayulu. Uh, within 24 hours, that deal uh, pretty much broke out. And I do believe, unfortunately, you know, politicians can surprise you uh, many times that you know they sign document and then they change. Uh, so they split a, among themselves into two camps, where you have Felix Chisekedi as a leader of one opposition uh, group, and then you have Martin Fayulu. Uh, what I've seen, though, on the ground, um, be it Martin Fayulu and Felix Chisekedi, people are coming out in masses. What is very clear also, looking at the masses coming out, uh, the majority of the Congolese are supporting Martin Fayulu. Uh, but the, the reason why they're supporting Martin Fayulu is not because Martin Fayulu uh, is a great leader, that there are no other leaders in the RC. It's more so that the people understand the political landscape and they feel that Martin Fayulu will um, arise to the aspiration of the people of the Congo. So what we do know, uh, if the elections are free and fair, uh, Martin Fayulu or Felix Tshisekedi will win. Um, but what the Congolese people actually want in their expressions in all the rallies is mainly that they, they do not want the same regime to continue to have hold into power, and they want a new leadership to have a new beginning in the Congo. Kembale Musavuli is the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the elections, which are scheduled to take place on Sunday in Congo. Thanks for joining us, Kembale. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have a final Global Notes with Tony Sarabia, and we'll have some live music in the studio from the Surabi Ensemble. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
Yay, the Sarabi Yay. Ensemble. Terrific music. Live in the studio, this is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. We are taking one more spin around the block with Tony Sarabia before he heads off to um, goat farming retirement in Iowa. Hey, Jerome. Hey, Tony. It's fun to be back. <laughs> Mike Gilmore and his sound effects. I'm going to miss that. <laughs> Me too. Now, Tony, um, you know, it was fun this morning. You were telling me about every Global Notes segment where I didn't like the music this morning. And there, were, were, there got, weren't a lot. This was like eight or nine years of doing this. We've yeah. Been doing this and there were only same. three that I can remember. <laughs> One was a uh, some sort of horn slash bagpipe. Uh, from, I don't like bagpipes. From Bulgaria. <laughs> but this gentleman, Jerome... Um, he plays a, a phenomenal clarinet, too. I, I, I think he lives in Europe now, and I met him through a, uh, one of our uh, former colleagues. So there was that. There was also uh, Holly Cook, who is um, uh, an artist. She was with the sort of reggae punk band The Slits, and her other claim to fame is she's the daughter of the drummer from the Sex Pistols. Her dad is, or her uh, godfather is Boy George. And she came out with an album called Twice. It was her second album. And it was just this really laid-back reggae, and for some reason you, you didn't take to that. Not all reggae is good, Tony. I don't know <laughs> no, if you've I'm, noticed that. I'm, <laughs> believe me, I'm with you on that, as much as I love reggae. And then there was the Limanianas, a kind of a psychedelic garage uh, band from That was just France. some trashy pop, Tony. And they're put out by a, <laughs> uh, a Chicago label. So... That's a pretty good uh, stat for doing it as long as we did it together, and you continue to do it with Catalina. You did, you did some great stuff, and, and it's so great to just be curious with you and have a great time with music. It's been fun, and we've had a lot of great bands, including uh, a revisit from Sarabi, which I love the name because it's almost like my last name, right? Just add another <laughs> And you got oh, Sarabia. Right. I didn't think about it. Sarabi uh, means like an unending source of treasure. It's a Sanskrit word. Oh, wow. Yeah, ah. so since it's a melting part of music, I thought you could name it Sarabi. And with us is Saraswati Rangarand. Don't worry, just call me Sarah. I'm, I'm just going to go. Uh, Welcome to my world. Ranganathan. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. You got it right. Thank you. Um, there it is. And um, it, we were together last night. We were in an event uh, with the United Nations Association. You were playing there. You guys are getting around town and doing a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. And um, y- you're. Um, your whole uh, idea and rap of bringing together different musicians from different uh, places, it's really cool. How did you start this organization? Yeah, every time I, I get asked this, I, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm like, I really begin to understand the intent of why I started it. So that's why they say when they are getting older, you also get wiser because you're trying to understand the whys. So, but this is mainly uh, for two reasons. My mom exposed me to some revolutionary veena music of Dr. Chitty Babu way back in India. And that was, uh, that's when the seed was sown that music is expansive and liberating rather than confining and constricting. And the second one is like most of my adult life was riddled with conflicts, the dysfunctional kind. So the only thing I was hanging on to was the veena. And so I thought maybe as an artist, what could I do to kind of, you know, have more amicability around us? How do we get along with different people from different backgrounds? So this was this was the thought and intent behind it. So um, I found Carlo, like, 
we had been working together for about 10 years now. Guitarist. So, yeah, Carlo Basili, the flamenco guitarist. And then Ronnie Malley, the oud player, is a wonderful discovery from Jungle Book. We were together as part of the Jungle Book or- Orchestra. Right. And then I've been working with Dananjay and, of course, Mamadou and Masamba. So it's like all of these cultures, they have a shared history of warmth and kinship. And so the idea is to kind of revive all of that not only on stage, but but also it kind of attracts a cross-cultural audience because our music is such that it's not just Spanish music or just Middle Eastern music. It's all of these raga, makam, the Spanish elements, the African elements, all fused together to give you a cohesive, uh, exciting experience. And so. it rocks. As you guys, was that uh, refreshing Raga Blues that you guys were playing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, from I the remember album. being in the studio for that. Yeah, <laughs> and I was listening to thinking, you know, I know the Grateful Dead, they never had opening acts, but if they did, you guys would be the perfect <laughs> opening act. I mean, you were really getting down that's that great. vena. Uh, describe the vena, because I always describe it as a, and is it right, it's a, it's actually comes before the, the uh, sitar? It's older than the sitar? Yeah, it's kind of several thousand years old. Wow. Uh, yeah, we we kind of believe that it's timeless <laughs> because it's held by the goddess of learning, Saraswati. So, uh, yeah, it's a southern Indian instrument. It's sort of like a parent for a lot of other stringed, fretted instruments that came after. So, How old were you when you picked it up? About six. Wow. So my mom had a small vena that she had for a six-year-old, I guess, so that worked. So any parents out there that are listening, if your six-year-old comes up to you and say, I want to learn how to play the vena, because usually they say, I want to learn how to play the drums or, or the guitar, <laughs> indulge them. Right? right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me about the world tour that you're doing. It's very exciting because you're calling cool. it a global peace tour, and you're going to Vietnam, Spain, Portugal, Senegal. You're going to a lot of cool places. Yeah, like Carla or Ronnie. Do, do, do does Carla want to come over? And, uh, yeah, yeah, I was, I was talk talking to Carla about, about this. You guys leave in January, night. right? Yeah, we were leaving in January. Yeah. Nice time to get and away so from yeah, Chicago just, winters, that, right? That was part of the idea. So <laughs> we do this during January. I think it was just a question <laughs> of the schedules that we all had, and it was a question of uh, connecting the dots with some people. Just sit down, Carla. Okay, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> I have a guitar. I was, I, I, was okay. at, I was talking to Carla last night about his tattoo. Okay. Uh, you, where's your tattoo? You got Which a, one? <laughs> you got a nice globe there. You got a nice yeah, globe nice. on your arm. Yeah, I, I was kind of, I was thinking of ways to respond to the current situation, the current regime. Let's just keep it at that. When and the Trump administration well, came what, to power? If you want to talk about it like that, that's fine. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to do something positive, though, you know. And, and so, yeah, the tattoo was nice. But I really thought, what can we do on a, on a global level? You yeah. know, what can we do as musicians, right? So for me, it was about okay, let me connect the dots with some people in places that I've been to. Masamba Diop in Senegal, um, who is the brother-in-law of Mamadou, Mamadou who's Mamadou. here. Yeah. yeah, I was in Senegal 2004, and some, some guy came into the room with this drum, and I had my guitar, and he said, we didn't even speak. We just started playing you know, music together, and I was like, that was cool. Turns out it was Mamadou <laughs> in 2004. <laughs> so, so that happened, and then there were, I did some workshops, some Spanish guitar workshops in Hanoi, Vietnam. I've done that before been to Spain to study, of course, and uh, Portugal. I have a great cellist friend who lives there. So I thought, let me put this all together. Talk to Ronnie and Sarah. We, we, we all got together. We, we thought of, now what, we, what can we do while we're there? And so we contacted some refugee organizations. We, we um, contacted some immigrant organizations, other social organizations, and we're going to um, visit those places and perform for them and do what we can. And this is not new for That's Ronnie terrific. either, because when Ronnie was with Lama Jamal, 
I think you guys made a similar trip to Kashmir. Is that is that right? Uh, well, I went to Kashmir and because we were working on a project out there. Yeah. And uh, we ended up doing a tour. We went to Turkey. We went to France. We went to. Uh, and what was the response to your group out there? People loved it. Generally speaking, I think that when you travel the world and you visit other cultures, and people see that you are not just interested in their culture, but pick up a few words or learn some of their music, they're blown away. I, yeah. I think one of the biggest things was when we went to Turkey, for example, and here we, over here, you know, we sat and learned all of this Ottoman music and all of these, you know, these ancient traditions, and we get there and they're listening to disco <laughs> and all these other things. And then they, and we realized like, wow, we're like preserving your tradition for you and they're coming to us to learn from it. I think that's a beautiful exchange because we're showing them that, you know, as much as you might want to be like us in the West or in America, that we really love and respect the tradition that you have. And I, I think that's the greatest form of adoration. Yeah. And it's Lovely. like a delightful way of transcending race, religion, culture, and color. Absolutely. So that's the message we want to try to get across, like uh, a message of uh, cross-cultural <laughs> exchange yeah, absolutely. and cultural awareness in young minds. So You're kind of far from a mic, sir, at this yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, let's hear some more music. Let's do another tune. The Sarabi Ensemble, their uh, global peace tour coming from Vietnam, Spain, Portugal, Senegal.
just slacking off on that tune. Absolutely not. The Sarabi <laughs> Ensemble. I love the talking drum yeah. tabla jam. That was awesome. <laughs> the and solo. Was that just all improv? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Because so, I mean, well, I'm sure you guys start that way sometimes. No, right? but the just, arrangement is pretty much like the record. There, it was just we we truncated it for for your show. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Thank yeah. you. But how when you guys play, how often <laughs> do you just improvise and keep going? A lot. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> Well, we do because we're playing in different rhythms and different scales in the raga or the makam or in some Andalusian scale that I come up with. But but essentially, you know, we start out as a jam and then it becomes more cohesive and then hopefully it becomes actually sort of tight when we all get together and play it as a performance. You're going to make a lot of people happy in Vietnam, Spain, Portugal, and Senegal. <laughs> well, and the thing is we wanted to represent Chicago in a super cool way. That and I think D-Case is getting behind this and some of the other... Uh, grants and sponsors that, that are involved, so we're really happy with that. Yeah, I, I enjoy watching everybody play, but I gotta say, Mama do play in the, the talking drum. Wow. <laughs> that looks like a that looks like a lot of work. Yeah. I wanna also just give a shout out real quick too that the album that we put together was uh, funded in part by D Case but from Chicago. So it was really the catalyst to helping us put together this tour. Like we are really trying to also represent Chicago because it's where we all met. It's this mm-hmm. diverse place where, I mean, if I stayed or if I was living in you know, my own country, if in Palestine or Egypt or anywhere like that, I probably would have never met this group of people. And it just is possible being here in Chicago. And you probably still would have had that old-fashioned view of Chicago. Bang, bang, right? It's all Al Capone or Michael Jordan. <laughs> right. But now we can go around the world and say Jerome McDonald and, there you go. and Tony <laughs> Sarabia. <laughs> Yay. And Raga Blues. And Raga Blues. So uh, we're going to play one more song out? Is that we the, can, is that sure. The gig? Should we do, let's the, do that. the Chicago thing or what? What do we want to do? Um, yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, Tony, it has been a pleasure doing Global Notes with you for the last eight or nine years. Yeah, I look forward to visiting you in in Iowa. Rural Iowa. And you guys are always welcome to come out and play some music. I have your, your contact info. It's a beautiful, wide-open space. The goats would love it. I'm sure they might add some of their own sounds to it. We'll learn some goat music. <laughs> goat music for you. Definitely. You're welcome to join us on the road, too, Tony. You know that. Yeah, okay. I, I wish I could. Tony, <laughs> Vietnam, Spain, Portugal, Senegal. Not bad. I know. Uh, Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to have a year in review of climate and the environment. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.